Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globe-trotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 57th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is how teams can help prevent burnout at work. I'm joined by Paula Davis, the author of Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Well-Being and Resilience. The publisher is Warden School Press. Paula Davis, JD, MAPP, is the founder and CEO of the Stress and Resilience Institute, a training and consulting firm. A former lawyer, Paula earned an MA in Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. Among her clients have been over 40,000 U.S. Army soldiers and more than a few lawyers. She's been featured in the New York Times, O, the Oprah Magazine, the Washington Post, and she contributes to Forbes, Fast Company, and Psychology Today. Welcome to the show, Paula. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm so excited to talk to you about one of my favorite topics. Good, good. So uh, give us a brief overview, if you would, of the book. So the book is really uh, about um, preventing burnout and what burnout really looks like and how we need to be starting to talk about it within the context of organizations and as leaders and expanding the conversation out from really taking more of an individual focus or an individual lens or look at the burnout problem, which is where I think most most organizations have tended to, to gravitate toward, um, but really looking at how teams and how the system, how the workplace culture can really um, be um, better designed so that burnout is less likely to happen. Okay. No, I, I love the focus and you're right. I think the supposition is, is it's an individual problem, but it can often be systemic. So I, I'm going to want to go through all of those layers, but before we get there, it seems to me there's probably a good foundational question we should cover, which is what is the difference between stress and burnout? So, so stress is, um, so my favorite definition of stress comes from um, Dr. Kelly McGonigal, who is one of my favorite uh, health psychologists. And she talks about stress as what happens when something that you care about is at stake. And so that's really broad. There are a whole host of things that can, can fall under that category um, from everyday hassles to just feeling, excuse me, a little bit stressed out about maybe something bigger, um, whether it's a workplace-related thing or a, a life adversity. Um, but what we know about burnout, so this is what I always tell people, you know you've traveled away from something that it just looks like stress into something that is more burnout-related when you start to see the three big dimensions or symptoms of burnout appear. And the first one is chronic physical and emotional exhaustion. So nothing that you do to manage your stress or very little that you've done in the past that's been successful is helping you now just feel a sense of like engagement and like, woo, it's Monday morning. I'm so excited to be, you know, going into work that that feeling of, you know, ready to just, you know, kind of tackle the day and feeling like you have enough energy to take on all of the demands that you have on your plate. Um, the second big dimension of burnout is chronic cynicism. So again, more often than not, you find yourself just really annoyed by people. 
uh, and they bother you, and this could be your clients, your patients, your colleagues, um, your family, your friends, um, but particularly at work, those, you know, those work colleagues and clients and patients and folks. Um, and then lastly, uh, people who ha- are experiencing burnout noticed a sense of lost impact. I call it really kind of like, why bother? Who cares? Uh, you know, like you're not going to listen to my advice anyways, or, you know, kind of why am I doing this? You know, this, this why bother, who cares mentality. And so burnout is really all three of those things. And so we all have, you know, days, especially, you know, given the state of the world in the last year plus, I mean, we all have days and sometimes even weeks or periods of longer where we have maybe one or two or more of those pieces, but burnout is really all three of those things experienced more often than not over a period of time. Okay. No, I like that. That's very helpful. And certainly those three dimensions. So let's go back to the layers and I'm going to start, I know we're going to talk a good deal about teams, but I want to start with the boss uh, for a reason, which is when Gallup has done its surveys, it's, they've found a couple of interesting things. First of all, the, the most, the greatest likelihood you'll stay on the job and enjoy the job is that you have a best friend at work. Mm-hmm. And that really emerged from their survey data. But the other one is that they often make the statement that we, we leave, we don't leave a company, we, we leave a boss. And we want to put that boss behind. So I want to go to the team role, but I want to start with the boss because I have to think there are ways in which you found certainly the boss contributes to stress and burnout. And hopefully you have some some tools or ideas on on how that relationship, just that one-on-one can be better. Yes, I love both of those pieces or parts of the Gallup research. And really, um, you know, I talk about the the best friend link when I when I'm talking about, you know, both the burnout side of my work and the resilience side of my work. And it's so funny because even even though they phrase it as having a best friend, I still feel just this is just me, my for, the former lawyer in me. I feel like it's still kind of squishy feeling to say that to, to work teams like, oh, do you have a best friend? It sounds <laughs> like, oh, let's go hug kind of a thing. And so but the but the data behind it is very compelling. And, and you know, really talking about how if you have someone at work who you you view as you know, has your back, who supports you, who cares about you, who's a good sounding board for you, your productivity and engagement is not just a little bit higher. I think the Gallup research points to it being like seven times higher. So, I mean, it's it's absolutely critical. And their work is spot on and that really leaders are responsible for, for driving this conversation. And so when I work with organizations, I'm very keen to make sure that I am speaking directly in part, at least to just the leaders or people leaders of an organization at some point so that they can better understand that they really have a tremendously large role to play in the context of, uh, you know, preventing burnout and organize, organizing. I think that the type of positive team culture, just the positive culture that's needed to make burnout less likely to happen. So so leaders are tremendously important. And you'll notice in the book, too, that I tended to try and spotlight at least places where, you know, leaders have an especially large role to play. Okay. Well, I, I certainly like that notion that the, uh, you know, the best friend, uh, to my mind, and drawing on your book is, is about uh, having a sense of belonging. It might be yep. an island of two people, you and that best friend, but at least there's some place where where trust exists. Um, I, I want to go back, though, just a little bit briefly back to the, the boss, though, because it seems to me that over time, and I've, I've been a boss and I've obviously been bossed around <laughs> and have bosses, um, but that, that's a relationship over time that starts on the notion that we're, we're trying to coordinate and get the work done. But the emotional com- components of that relationship really build up over time and can be barnacles on the ship, so to speak, or just things that you know create their own problems and can fester. 
do you have in the work that you have repeatedly, and I'm sure very well done, found some things that do address just very specifically the the boss employee interaction that includes, you know, how annual reviews get handled, uh, anything else you want to bring up? Sure. So I, when I, when I work with leaders, it's, it's less about, you know, specifically those types of moments like annual reviews and more about contextual environment. Like what, what tools or ideas can I give you? What should you be focusing on as leaders in order to establish the right kind of environment overall within the context of your teams? So first and foremost, the the absolute one of the absolute foundational layers that I always talk about with leaders is how to help them build psychological safety or trust within their teams. Uh, because I've, I've just found both from a research standpoint and then my, my work with teams and organizations that if you don't have that layer and aren't prioritizing it, some of the other pieces of the puzzle become much more difficult to to implement. And so, I mean, it can be things as simple as being accessible and approachable. And I can't tell you how many times I've worked with people who I can easily find, but when I find them, they're sort of like human being repellent. Like I don't, I don't (laughs) want to interact with them because they're always like cranky or something else is going on. And that doesn't mean you have to be nice all the time, but you, yeah. In other words, my my door is open, but don't you dare come through it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You can find me, but I don't want to, I really don't want to talk to you. Uh, and, and so being accessible and approachable and just recognizing when someone joins your space, whether it's your virtual space or your person to person space, the you matter cues that you're giving them in terms of, are you looking, looking them in the eye? Do you continue to type your text messages? I actually went through an interview once, um, back when I was a lawyer and one of the people, he was a VP who was, who was interviewing me. And this was, you know, at at this time, obviously face to face. He was interviewing me. He would ask me a question and then he would like text. He would, he was clearly doing something else during, during the context of my interview. And it was so off putting. And, um, you know, so paying attention to how you are really responding to people when they're in your environment really matters enormously to uh, psychologically to how we perceive that sense of belonging, like you mentioned, and how we perceive that trust either being there or not being there. So there's lots of those small behavior cues um, that I talk to leaders about, and I think they're surprised. I don't think they sort of at the end say, well, yeah, that's kind of intuitive, but it is, but we don't do it. We don't we don't pay attention to it enough to actually operationalize those behaviors. Yeah, what's sometimes called microaggressions for things that are happening subconsciously that we're throwing off that goes against trust, which of course is, you know, often called the emotion of business, but uh, leaders can think it only applies to uh, customers, but of course it must and should apply to employees too. Yes. And I mean, another important piece of the puzzle that, that I think is really important for leaders to recognize, and in the book, I call it just paying attention to your leading to support behaviors versus leading to control behaviors. Uh, Okay. That because so many, and I, I don't think that at least my experience has been, I've worked with a lot of people who will, who will out themselves as micromanagers and they're not doing it. I think to be hard on other people, I think that it's, it's what they learned from the leaders who they, you know, were part of teams for. Um, And I think everyone's just so busy and there's so many deadlines and there's so many, um, there's so much pressure that it's sort of like, I just want you to get this done, you know, just just do it now. and, And, you know, Tell me every five minutes that you're working on it so that I can feel a peace of mind. But it really, really impedes um, meaning and impact and, and autonomy and that sense of, you know, flexibility and, and certainly um, that belonging piece as well. And so just talking to leaders and, and encouraging them 
to acknowledge and listen to their workers' perspectives, like really hear what people are saying, really hear what their ideas are and, and demonstrate how you are hearing and how you are implementing those ideas. That's also something that builds trust and psychological safety. But one one thing I think that's really important for leaders to consider is to actually provide a rationale or explanation for projects, for goals, for big picture ideas. Oh, and we okay. oftentimes just assign a task or we just assign something and say, here, um, without like much of the backstory, without understanding how my piece of the puzzle really fits into the larger context. Um, it was a very different reaction for me, I know, when I was given an assignment by a partner or by another lawyer and they explained here's why we need this, you know, I, why I need you to drop what you're doing and why I need you to stay until midnight to, to finish this versus, ah, you're just the low person on the totem pole. So it's, it falls to you to, to do it. You, the, those messages are received very differently. And so anytime that you can add one or two more sentences about the context of a project or even just the vision that you might have for your team or within the organization, it helps tremendously. Sure. Well, I'd hardly want to compare the workplace to a concentration camp, although in some places it might be a good comparison. But that makes me think of Frankel's work on how mm -hmm. the prisoners, those who had a sense of purpose or meaning, yes. uh, were the ones who had a better survival rate in that horrendous situation. Um, so that makes a lot of sense to me. So you you have a wonderful PR person named Pam who gave me a cheat sheet with questions. I, I rarely resort to them, but there was one there that I liked. Uh, that I want to make sure I included here. It says, are there specific job demands that are predictive of burnout? And I like that in the context of managers, and we're going to be transitioning here into teams because presumably to the extent we still have managers as opposed to someone who just coordinates teams, uh, they might be in, indeed the ones who assign those specific job demands. So are there some that you have found in your research and practice that uh, are predictive of burnout? Most definitely. And, and this is, I think, one of the biggest ahas that leaders and folks who I talk to tend to have in the context of the burnout conversation, because we tend to think of burnout as an individual issue. And really what it is, is it's the individual manifestation or the individual expression of a workplace culture or systems issue. And so what happens is, is we take we take this individual lens and we apply you know, self-help and self-care and stress management strategies to what is really a workplace culture issue. And so we keep missing the mark in terms of uh, of really making good headway in, in, uh, in alleviating or at least slowing down burnout appearing in our workplaces. And so I always ask people, I say, if you see that people within your organization are burning out or you know that they're burning out, you have to take a step back and ask why, because that's the question that we have to be answering. That's the deeper conversation that we haven't been paying attention to for so long. And we have to be yep. thinking about what are, what are the actual causes of it? Why is this happening? And so the research would, would point to some very specific job demands that show that when these things are present, it can accelerate the likelihood of burnout happening. And the, the, the big one that I, at least I see when I have a chance to work with teams, you know, whether it's anecdotally or I'm able to measure it, is workload. And that's a tough demand to start to, you know, have conversations around within organizations because the people who I talk to say, man, if they would just hire like two people, three more people, it would help me out a lot. And the organization says, well, there's just not enough budget or that's just not what, what we're built to do right now. And you automatically get this, this sort of catch-22 tension that, that happens. But yet it's still probably, I don't think I've worked with a team or an organization that doesn't talk about workload being a problem or, or being an issue. And so 
Um, what I try to do is break apart what does workload mean? Is it too many emails? Is it how you're communicating? Are you not teaming well enough? Is it too many meetings? Are you not taking advantage of all of the resources that you have at your disposal? It's, it's, so it becomes more, it becomes a better conversation when you can tease apart what's actually factoring into workload. And, and a lot more things are probably under your control than you might, than you might think. So, so there's that one. Um, another big one that I tend to find is lack of recognition. Um, kind of lack of recognition or rewards is how the research would talk about it. But it can range from just, you know, hey, I, honestly, I don't feel like I'm being compensated enough. I don't feel like I'm being thanked enough. I feel like I'm working at a certain level, but my title doesn't match it. I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me, you know, my boss was in a meeting and he or she is texting me asking for my opinion or my advice on something. And I'm wondering, why can't I just be in the meeting? You know, like, <laughs> yep. give me a seat at the table. That would be fantastic. And so that can be very exhausting and very frustrating for a lot of people. And so so there's that piece. Um, the lack of flexibility and autonomy is a big one. And I tend to see that one um, as well, especially these days. I mean, we've all had a taste now of what, you know, having a measure of flexibility can feel like. And I think a lot of us don't really want to give that up so easily now as we transition back to the world of work. Um, and then another one that I tend to see, although a little bit less frequency, is lack of team and leader support. So kind of back to what we've been talking about, you know, when you show up to a team where you know that you are, uh, that you're cared for, that people have your back, it's enormously protective. And when you don't have that, it's very distressing and it's very stressful for people to have to to be in that environment. So those are those are four big demands that we know can really drive burnout. Okay, no, that's a really good list, really important list. Now, as promised, I want to make sure that we give at least one question and answer to teams. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've talked about bosses a bit. Uh, on the team level, what, what, what are the manifestations, what are the dynamics, what are the opportunities for improvement? So the way that I started to think about teams, first and foremost, I, I got just really interested in it because as I started to, as I started to come around to understanding what burnout was really about and what was driving it and what was actually going to fix it, I realized that all of this focus on just solely the individual view wasn't enough. Uh, and the yep. research is pretty clear that we've got to start taking a stronger organizational stance toward this, but that also seems really daunting. And, and, and how could I, I have to be able to sell this. I have to be able to translate this into organizations and I can't just walk in and say, well, you just have to change your culture. And isn't that so great? Um, <laughs> you have yes. to be able to do this and it has to be like realistic. And so for me, I took a step back and wanted to just think about what, it, where within the system within this organizational system would make some sense for us to start to really be able to capture some of some of this holistic need. And so for me, that was teams. And so being able to, within the context of a team, um, talk about, um, you know, uh, the team itself, to be able to talk about leadership strategies is really important. And then also still not ignoring the individual side of, you know, piece of the puzzle that that comes up, the frontline worker aspect can come up in the context of teams as well. And so that was really my starting point for all of this. And then really just dug into the research around, you know, if we're going to help our teams create a sense of resilience and ability to deal with all of the stress and the adversity and the ambiguity and challenges that we're certainly facing right now, what are the ingredients or competencies or muscles that teams and leaders and people need to be paying attention to? And that's where my, my primed model came from. 
Sure. So let's maybe go in. I don't want to go in depth because we've only got about 10 minutes left, but I, I certainly want to at least give listeners a little bit of a feeling of what that is about because, yes, we're talking now about teams, we're talking about culture, and we're talking about leadership roles. So we've got a lot of pieces in the puzzle. Yes. And and maybe, you know, in, in a couple of minutes here, can you give us at least a, a toe in the water as to how you might address or at least analyze these situations? Sure. So so really the foundation or the entry point for me is almost always through what I mentioned earlier, that psychological safety layer, helping teams promote a sense of trust. Okay. And then also talking about... Uh, the research calls it psychological needs, and I call them your ABC needs. So autonomy or that flexibility, belonging, as we've talked about already, and then helping and making sure that there's um, that people feel like they're growing and developing as professionals. So I call that competence. So just feeling like you're given stretch assignments and things like that. So those two pieces are really the foundational aspects that I, I try to almost always talk about. But then there's the rest of the pieces, which are relationships, which we've talked about, um, impact and meaning. So do you do you have a sense of how your work is contributing to the, the larger organizational purpose? Is it filling is it filling you up in terms of what you want work to give to you? So meaning and impact is important. Um, mindset, which I think is a wholly under discussed aspect, certainly of um, resilience, but but also in the context of preventing burnout. So helping people recognize um, when counterproductive thinking is taking excess energy and what they can do to uh, mitigate some of those thinking styles. Um, energy, so again, just prioritizing you know, where, where to focus energy, what does energy look like within your team, how stressed out is everybody, um, are leaders kind of focusing on the right things to promote the right kind of energy. And then the last aspect is design. So giving um, teams and leaders and folks some tools where if you want to make some tweaks, and I, and I presented in the book um, both ways, if you want to you know, individually just make some tweaks to how your own work is manifesting or, or that piece of the puzzle, you can do it. Um, but if you want to make a little tweak, tweaks or redesigns to um, the, the team culture collectively, you can do that as well. So it's those pieces. Okay. No, I, I like that, including the uh, trying to have a real sense of where your career is going or how you're going to develop. I once had, I confess, a, a quite psychotic boss, and uh, she really gave compliments, but she said, you're the only one who actually laid out a career path for the people on your staff in the annual reviews. Um, so that that was nice to hear. And and thinking of this person who um, subsequently had, I think, five lawsuits filed oh. against her and the company, therefore, at large, um, preparing for this conversation, I started thinking maybe a bit more globally and beyond the book, and maybe uh, I'm off base or you don't want to go there with me, but I started saying, what are the larger ways in which we can hold leaders accountable? Because I think we both know that these things can be squishy and sometimes accountability and metrics can help ensure that something gets, you know, there's a handle and progress gets made. So here's here's my model almost in a way, and I want to see what your, your thoughts might be. This might take a, a wee bit to explain, but if you can stay with me. Mm -hmm. So I, I started thinking about the EPA and the fact that I, I used to live in New Jersey and you had these super fun toxic sites that uh, required funding to, to clean them up. And uh, someone was responsible for this. Someone created this mess. And that, you know, means that this stress and this burnout can, can certainly come from external forces and someone who could be a habitual you know, practitioner. So to what extent do you know uh, that VPs or directors or even managers, that it's it's increasingly now perhaps in recognition of stress and burnout, 
built into how they are promoted, how they are compensated, rewarded with bonuses, some of these following things. I'm thinking about retention rate within a given department. I'm thinking about the degree of absenteeism that could be evident in a department. And then, you know, going back to this boss I had, I'm even thinking about instances where uh, maybe there are HR is being asked to intervene because there is a you know chronic uh, mental health, uh, physical well-being issues that are arising, uh, even to the point of of lawsuits potentially. Are any of those kinds of metrics being used or contemplated as a way to ensure that this situation moves forward better? I love this question, and it's where I would love to see organizations start to go. I don't know of many organizations, though, that are actually doing what you just described. And so and and there's lots of different ways to look at it, because each of the things that you talked about retention rates, I actually was thinking, too, about like safety rates or rates of errors, because I do some work in healthcare, And I think about, you know, the patient safety scores and things like that. Um, You know, you mentioned absenteeism and then chronic mental health. Hmm. There's so many factors that play into all of those things. And so I think, though, that Paying attention to, to the leadership piece of it is one piece of that big puzzle. Um, but I don't know a lot of organizations that are really, you know, from a metric standpoint and from a promotion, uh, you know, of the leader, you know, kind of angle, really paying attention to that. Um, but I think it would be an important conversation to start to be had. And one thing that I do notice is that I think companies generally are just really honestly slow to deal with their and I don't know if we call them bad apples. I don't know if we're just talking about you know the level of the person who you just described. Um, but when you have a known leader who is consistently um, undercutting, you know, folks, uh, you're noticing that there's more turnover on his or her team. Um, you know, anecdotally that you know there are potentially a lot of issues happening. Um, I think companies are just way too slow to catch those folks. And, you know, it can be addressed with coaching first and foremost. There's ways to handle it before just, you know, terminating the person and letting them go. But I think you have to really be careful because, because, you know, companies are talking about, you know, promoting their values and culture and things like that. And if you really honestly have somebody who is operating outside of what you claim to be values and culture are, they're having such a profound ripple effect within your organization in terms of damaging trust and a whole host of other things, promoting burnout, dismantling um, engagement, for example, that you really, really have to take that seriously. And I would like to see companies really upping their game a little bit in that respect. Well, I I'm, admit that I'm happy to hear that because I'd like to think that the the arc of justice is uh, progressing a bit. I know that, uh, what, a year or two ago, the business roundtable leaders you know, all sorts of major executives agreed to essentially revisit the mission of a company, which was not just the uh, shareholder model that Milton Friedman brought forward in the 1980s, mm-hmm. but instead looking at employees, customers, how you're serving the community and so forth. So a, a broader and I'd like to think more humane uh, you know, judge of where you're bringing value. And um, so that would, that would fit very much with what you're talking about. Uh, before we stop, there's there's one other thing I wanted to come back to that I thought was important, and it's it's discussed a bit in the book. When we're talking about the workplace and stress and certainly teams, I think we have to go to diversity and inclusion. And I say that not just because of the Me Too, Too movement or Black Lives Matter, but simply looking at the demographics of where the American workplace is moving to and the composition of the millennial and even Gen X 
workforce is a lot different and a lot more racially diverse, for instance, than it would have been even in the baby boomer era. So I want to give you a chance before we close to, to talk about that. Yes. And I've heard so much and it's, for me, it's, it's been more, uh, just purely anecdotal, even, you know, whether it's just, you know, folks reaching out to me in the context of a presentation that I've given or a workshop or a training or what have you, um, that, that we really have to start prioritizing this intersection. There is a resilience, burnout, well-being kind of spot to be had, an intersection to be had with the diversity and inclusion conversation. And it, my entry point to a lot of that conversation has been within the psychological safety research and realm, because when you feel a sense of trust, when you you're able to bring your first, your full self to work, you don't have to cover, you don't have to, you know, Kenji, I can't think of his last name, but um, to his work, um, you know, you don't have to cover, you don't have to um, hide parts of who you are. And that just opens the door to such a tremendous difference in terms of how you perceive work, how engaged you feel, how energized you are. And I know from my own practice, my own law practice for seven years, I don't really think that I felt like I had many days where I showed up as Paula, the person, it was more so Paula, the lawyer who I thought I had to be. And so I, I can't wait to explore and pilot more of these intersections. And I'm doing that now with, with organizations to see how these pieces can fit together. So it's almost, yes, it needs to happen. Yes, it is happening. And it's almost like <laughs> stay tuned for the, for the rest of the story kind of conversation when I can really start to dig into some of these pieces. Sure. So we had a preliminary conversation for you on the air here at, on Zencaster to record this. Um, and there was something you wanted to address briefly, if you could, which is uh, a major surprise that perhaps occurred for you in the writing of this book. Yes. And it was that um, burnout and engagement can coexist and oftentimes do. And part of what struck me about that is that uh, the research oftentimes paints engagement as the opposite of burnout. Um, but this one particular study that I found, and then just anecdotally, um, you know, it's been supported in my own work and in my own research, um, shows that, you know, people can still feel a sense of engagement about their work, but they can also be phenomenally frustrated by it, that, that there is this complex interplay for a lot of people. And the one study happened to just show that about 20% of the folks in the study classified themselves or were classified as high engaged and highly burned out. And oftentimes it was because they didn't feel that they had enough of these protective resources, these things that were energy giving and motivational about their work. And so it was causing um, a, a lot of you know, ambiguity and just uncertainty about how they saw their roles. Okay. Well, glad we got that piece in. I want to thank you, Paula, so much for being on the show today. It's been a lot of fun. It's a meaningful cause. I'm glad you're throwing yourself into that and you can be the full Paula, uh, not just the lawyer. Yes. Um, this has been episode number 57. And uh, my guest has been Paula Davis, the author of Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Well-Being and Resilience. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Uh, you can find up other episodes of this podcast on my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. Or if you go to the New Books Network website, uh, it is listed under the specials series programming. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In light of today's topic, I've chosen this quote from, of all places, Aesop's Fables, where it says, a crust eaten in peace is better than a banquet partaken in anxiety. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm -hmm.